Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Saturday Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with apologist William Hensworth on the Four Persons Network. William is passionate about teaching the faith. He is a convert that attended a Baptist seminary. He is a father and a catechist that will encourage you to live the faith, evangelize, and defend it. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. Once again, the phone number to call into the show is 515-602-9655. Ladies and gentlemen, William Hemsworth. Good morning, everyone. William Hemsworth here, and welcome to Burnt Toast and Coffee. And of course, as you know, I live on the West Coast right now, so it is 9 o'clock in the morning, or you may be listening, it may be noon, so good afternoon, and good time of day, no matter where you're listening from, whether it's live or podcast form, you listen later on, welcome to the show. Um, Kind of exciting topic over the next couple weeks. I'm going to take a couple weeks to cover this topic. And it's the history and theology of the Roman canon. Now, for those that may not know what the Roman canon is, it's actually the first Eucharistic prayer. And it's the oldest of the Eucharistic prayers. Um, so I'll start with a little background. So, I mean, throughout the history of Christianity, there's been some subjects that have been written, debated, discussed ad nauseum. Okay, like uh, the divinity of Christ, the nature of the Trinity, the development of the canon of scripture may even fall, they, they fall into that category. Those are vital topics, and really we still need to be discussing those things because there are still some misconceptions out there. Um, then there are subjects that are kind of taken for granted. And this is kind of where the Roman canon falls into the category. So the Roman canon is the first of the four main Eucharistic prayers that the priest may use during the Mass. And it's also the oldest of the prayers, and it's been it's been in use in one form or the other since the sixth century. The other main Eucharistic prayers are used that are used during Mass have its origins in the Roman Canon. Now, when you go to your uh, average Mass on uh, Sunday morning, by the way, no Mass is average. I just want to point that out. I mean, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is present. That is anything but ordinary. It's a miracle every single time. But normally, the Eucharistic prayer that you're going to hear is the second one. It's a little shorter, but a lot of the same theology is still contained in it. Now, how old is the Roman canon? Like I said, it's been used in one way or another since the 6th century, but it's, a pro- it's dating. Um, that's a matter of debate. But what is clear is that the prayer does have ancient origins. Now, in his great essay titled The Development of Christian Doctrine, um, Cardinal Henry Newman lays out a fascinating explanation. So he, he equates a doctrine to an acorn. And as time goes by, this acorn becomes an enormous oak tree. Now, Though the Roman canon isn't a doctrine per se, I think this is a good analogy for it. The development and theology of the Roman canon can be traced back to our Jewish ancestors. And sometimes we have a tendency to forget that the first Christians were Jewish. 
And so when we study early church history, that's an important fact to remember. The celebration of the Eucharist, uh, the Mass, and the Roman canon can be understood in a deeper way when we consider those factors. Um, In fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 134 calls the Eucharist the source and summit of our faith. This means that without the Eucharist, really we're just a run-of-the-mill sect. All right. The body and blood of Christ that is given to the faithful in the Eucharist changes everything. The Eucharist changes everything. So how does this relate to the Roman canon? The prayer itself has multiple parts, but from these parts, we can see the whole of Catholic theology. The pinnacle of the prayer leads to the consecration where the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ is made present on the altar. It is the worship of Christ in heaven being united with the worship of him on earth. Within the prayer of the Roman canon, we pray for the blessing of God individually. We pray for the church as a whole. Uh, We ask the saints to pray for us. We pray for the Pope and all the clergy. We ask the Blessed Virgin Mary to pray for us. And through the prayer of consecration, we ask to be delivered from damnation. The canon is so detailed, the Roman canon is so detailed and so rich in theology that its study has had an impact on catechesis throughout the history of the church. Now, how did the development of theology of the Roman canon impact the the catechesis of the faithful? That's what we're going to take some time to explore. We're going to take a couple weeks in this study. Now, to explore adequately, we need to take a journey through Scripture. This journey will be made through uh, all the pages of Holy Writ, not just the New Testament. Uh, we'll look at the writings of the early church fathers and early church documents. We'll, we'll look at those, too, because within those pages, we see the seeds being planted for what would eventually become the Roman canon. You see, these seeds eventually bloomed, but the words were the words used They were used to instruct the faithful since the early church period. Examining this development and catechetical methods will give us examples to use in our own methods today. So it's going to help us with evangelism, apologetics, theology, catechesis. Studying this prayer is huge. It's like a theology and apologetics course wrapped into one. All right. The teaching of the church has been clear throughout the centuries, but the implementation of recent years, let's be honest, maybe it's caused more harm than good. All right. So it's time to get back to the basics. It's time to study the history and theology. And that's what studying the history and theology of the Roman canon allows us to do. In the Roman canon, the universal church says thank you to the Lord. The canon is a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a prayer of thanksgiving that is timeless, and it is timeless because it goes into the past, present, future, and even outside of time as we know it. And so when one takes the time to reflect on the richness of theology contained within the canon, we have no choice but to say thank you and go forth into the world proclaiming the kingdom of God. So the Vatican II document, Sacrosanctum Concealing, urges us to understand and take part in the liturgy. 
The Eucharistic prayer is at the center of the entire celebration of the Mass. And that's why its understanding is at the very center of catechesis. All right. Now, just um, so everyone knows, for purposes of the study, I did use the Roman canon as seen in the 1962 Missal. So there'll be a little Latin mixed in and here and there. But even if you go, if you go to the the Novus Ordo Missal, you're still going to find the same thing, just different, just newer English, but the same meaning, the same thing is there. All right. So the Roman Canon is recited after the angelic hymn, the, the angelic hymn of praise known as the Sanctus. Now, this may seem like a repetitive hymn. Now, we all know what it is. You know, I'm not going to sing it because no one wants to hear that. Y'all are going to immediately tune out if I start doing that. You know, Sanctus, 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 etc. right? It may seem repetitive. And to those that hear it, to those that hear it uh, quite frequently, sometimes, you know, sometimes that may be the case, right? However, its placement before the canon is not accidental. It's actually a combination of two biblical passages. So it's one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. The first verse that makes up the Sanctus is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, which states, quote, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The second part consists of Mark eleven nine, which reads, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The role that the Sanctus plays in relation to the Roman canon can't be understated. It can't be minimized. It's very important. So it lays the foundation for the supernatural events that are about to take place within our midst. And I'm sorry if I started laughing. My son, my son is like crawling behind me trying to get to the garage. I think he thought this was like a live YouTube stream or something. So sorry, guys. But the Sanctus lays the foundation for what's about to take place in our midst, okay? The people take the place of those on, from the first Palm Sunday who ushered our Lord into Jerusalem with palm leaves and praise as he's riding on the donkey. And so we see what Isaiah says, and we sing the angelic hymn of praise to the Lord who is sitting on the throne. We lift up our hearts to the King of kings and the Lord of lords in an unending hymn of praise that has been sung since the beginning of time. So just as the angels physically worship the Lord in heaven and the Israelites usher the divine Davidic king into Jerusalem, at the mass we welcome him physically and supernaturally in the words of consecration that come through the Roman canon. The Sanctus gives thanks for the great mysteries that are about to happen in the consecration. And so when we say the Sanctus, we join with what St. Cyril of Jerusalem calls, quote, the heavenly militia. This heavenly militia are the seraphim previously mentioned in Isaiah chapter 6. By singing this great hymn of the Sanctus, we are uniting our praise and worship with that of the angels whom were created, who were created to praise in heaven. Now, regarding this, Dr. Edwards III writes, quote, we see with the eyes of the angels what is happening in the liturgy, end quote. 
Now, like I said before, the Sanctus is made up of parts of Isaiah 6 and the Palm Sunday accounts in Mark and Matthew. However, the end of sacred scripture, the book Revelation, helps us in pulling the, this significant moment in the Mass together. In Revelation chapter 4, we see a vision of, heaven, of heavenly worship as witnessed by St. John. In Revelation 4.8, we see a very familiar hymn to the thrice holy God as sung in the Sanctus in the Mass in Isaiah 6. What is even more telling is Revelation 4.11, which says, quote, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. This is the song of the 24 elders who prostrate themselves before the throne of God in worship. So as we participate in this section of the Mass, we're being transported to the throne room of God. You see, St. John saw this and said that he was unworthy. The 24 elders in Revelation bowed down, and the seraphim hid their faces with their wings. It is at this point in the Mass where we bow in praise and adoration before the heavenly altar. The prayers of the Sanctus, along with the Pater Noster, are what make up the canon of the Mass, or the Roman canon. This is important to note because certain parts of the Mass can be changed based on the time of year or the feast day. However, the canon of the Mass stays the same. It's a fixed rule. Now, after the Sanctus, a prayer for the Church is given. Now, contained within this prayer is a prayer for the gifts that were brought to the altar. This, of course, no, they're the unconsecrated hosts and wine. The priest asks the blessings upon the gifts for the sacrifice that they will soon become. At this point, the priest has his arms raised as if lifting our prayers, yours and mine, towards heaven. He then prays for the work and peace of the whole Catholic Church. So if Christ established a church, then why pray for it? Now, some may ask this question, and throughout history there have been some, many who have asked this question. If you go on YouTube, there's many that ask this question today. But at this point of the canon, the priest and the congregation by extension are praying for the guidance of the Holy Spirit in governing the church. The church is more than an individual parish that we attend Mass at on Sunday. It's a worldwide organization that feeds, educates, clothes, and provides medical care to millions of people around the world on a daily basis. We lose track of that sometimes. The Catholic Church is the world's, world's largest charity. Okay? There are several nonprofit groups that fall under the Catholic banner, and they're subsidized by the church. These groups are often under extreme pressure to change their stance on certain issues or lose other forms of funding. It is wholly appropriate to pray that the church govern rightly and be assisted by the Holy Spirit to maintain the apostolic faith and teaching. Part of this prayer is a prayer that the Catholic Church be united. So in John 17, uh, verses 20 through 21, it's known as the high priestly prayer. Jesus states, quote, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The prayer for unity has been said since the time of Christ for his followers. In the second century, St. Polycarp prayed for the unity of the Catholic Church just prior to his martyrdom. Christ prayed for the unity of his church before his passion. It is the responsibility of the church to follow the lead of its master. There are a plethora of Christian groups in the world today, and many disagree with each other over basic doctrine. This is not only a barrier to evangelism, but is the sort of thing our Lord prayed about in his high priestly prayer. He prayed that the church may all be one. True unity exists in the Catholic Church, as it is the church that the Lord founded. Now, this doesn't mean that there will not be disagreements at times, but we're called to pray for unity and reinforce our commitment to Christ and to each other. In praying for the Catholic Church, we are praying in two senses. So in one sense, we're praying for the Catholic Church. In another sense, and when I say the Catholic Church in this regard, I'm praying with a capital C. In another sense, we're praying for the Catholic Church, lowercase c. You see, the first is universal. Okay? The first is for all Christians. We are praying that one day our separated brethren will join us at the Eucharistic feast. This desire to recover this unity that was lost is a call and gift from the Holy Spirit that is renewed at every Mass. We pray for the unity, protection, and governance of the church together with all the professors of faith, the bishops, and the pope. This is a command of scripture to pray for our leaders and the church. Now, one such example comes from Jesus when he says that he specifically prays for Peter. We see this in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, which states, but I have prayed for you, speaking to Peter here, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail and you when once you have turned back strengthen your brothers another example of its scriptural significance is seen in James 5:16 which tells us that the prayers of the righteous are effective so therefore the priest who's acting in the person of Christ is praying for the unity of all Christians and for the leadership of the church he does this to follow the command of scripture and to follow the example of the lord the Roman canon contains a series of three intercessions that make up the great intercession. The preceding, like I've said before, I said over the last couple minutes, I've just given you a background for the first part of this great intercession. From a catechetical point of view, this serves as a background on the importance of prayer. You see, the basic prayers I teach, um, I teach really just out of my parish. The basic prayers that a child learns are the Lord's Prayer, the Hail Mary, and the Glory Be, sometimes known as the doxology. Okay? This first part of the canon feeds into the meaning and devotion that are contained in those prayers. Father Herbert Lucas, in his book titled The Holy Mass, writes, quote, Now concerning these prayers, which have fed the devotion of most of us since early childhood, we were first able to toddle to church. So on the surface... These words seem somewhat innocuous. However, as people, we tend to become immune to something when we hear it a lot, especially if we don't understand the meaning of what's being said. But when we look into these prayers and we understand their meaning, the meaning is beautiful. It's rich. It feeds our soul. 
this great intercession, this part of the canon is known as the T. Igatur. That's Latin, which stands for therefore. Now, like I said before, we pray for the church as a whole and those ecclesiastical authorities that God has placed over us. The clergy and the church are under spiritual attack, and Satan wants them to fail. It is what it is. It's true. Just look around. This is spiritual warfare, and prayer is the number one weapon against such warfare. And the church has wisely placed this at the beginning of the canon. We are called to pray for others as well as our leaders. Now, once the prayer for ecclesiastical authorities is complete, the canon continues with what is called the commemoration of the living. The prayer continues with the words, quote, Be mindful, O Lord, of thy servants and handmaids. End quote. Now, at this point, the priest inserts a specific name or names for whom the Mass is being said. This prayer occurs after the Teigatur and is known as the Memento. In the Memento, the great intercession continues as the priest first prays specifically for persons he will name in the prayer. Now, this doesn't mean that the priest is showing favoritism or nepotism, but he is naming those to whom he has some obligation, gratitude, or charity towards. So the priest is offering up the worries, concerns, and troubles of those maybe whom he recently visited in the hospital at home or someone who has great authority or needs extra prayer. By no means is this an exhaustive list as to why the priest mentions these names. The missile actually has two blank spaces for two names, and these names can change at every Mass. So the priest then prays for everyone present at the Eucharistic sacrifice that their faith may be strengthened. The priest begs God on behalf of the church to watch over all those present and to bring them to the fullness of charity that grace may be bestowed on them in accord with their own faith. There are three parts in which the living are remembered or commemorated. The first time, excuse me, the first time is when the gifts are brought and presented to the priest and deacon. Another time in which the living are commemorated is when the bishop is the principal presider at Holy Mass. The third time, which is considered the most holy time for remembering the living, is in the anaphora, which is one of the objects of the study. Okay, During this commemoration, we not only remember and pray for each other, but it reminds us that we are not passive participants in the Mass. We're active participants, and in effect, a type of co-offerer through the priest to God himself. All right. So, so far in the Roman canon, we see very little that can be objected to by our non-Catholic friends. However, the next section of the Roman canon is one that has been objected to since the days of the Protestant Reformation. So, this section of the canon is known as the Invocation of Saints. So, within this section, we see a very clear definition of the Blessed Virgin Mary as Mother of God and prayers to the great heroes of the faith asking for their intercession. So the teaching of Mary as mother of God and the invocation of the saints um, carry huge theological implications. So the first part of this section states, quote, in communion with 
and honoring the memory, first of the glorious and ever-Virgin Mary, Mother of our God and Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. Calling Mary the Mother of God is a very clear theological teaching that is very important to understand. Uh, the teaching of Mary being the Mother of God is based in Scripture and reason. Elizabeth addressed Mary as the Mother of our Lord in Luke 143 when she said, quote, And why, why has this happened to me that the Mother of my Lord comes to me? All right? The title of Mother of God is especially important in not only honoring Mary, but in understanding the proper nature of Christ. This is the first Marian dogma, and simply put, um, the mother of, she's the mother of God because she gave birth to God incarnate. This, of course, is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. This title is one whereby Mary was addressed. Mary was called this from the beginnings of the church, and we see it in scripture and tradition. Uh, St. Irenaeus, in his amazing work called Against Heresies, when he was writing to the Gnostics, showed the two natures of Christ by calling Mary the mother of the Lord. He writes, quote, The Virgin Mary, being obedient to his word, received from an angel the glad tidings that she would bear God. End quote. Now, this was written in 189 AD and shows a very early understanding and importance of this title. St. Irenaeus by no means is the only early church father that understood its theological implications, not by a long shot. St. Gregory of Thematurgus wrote in 256, quote, For Luke, in the inspired gospel narratives, delivers a testimony not to Joseph only, but also to Mary, the mother of God, and gives this account with reference to the Barry family and house of David, end quote. Mary as mother of God was a was clearly established teaching of the church. And like I said a moment ago, was not only used to honor Mary for saying yes to God, but it's vital to understand the nature of Christ. Christ is the second person of the Trinity, and as such is the same essence of the Father. Now, this doesn't mean that she somehow supersedes the divinity of Christ. No, not at all. Christ has always existed. But his divinity was present in his nature from the point of conception. So Mary didn't give birth to the person and then he became divine afterwards. That's a heresy. Christ had two natures from the moment of conception. All right, that's the proper view of Christ. This view was challenged by a bishop by the name of Nestorius, who took exception to the time-honored tradition of addressing Mary as Theotokos, or God-bearer. Notori- um, notorious, sorry, Nestorius started addressing Mary as Christotokos, or Christ-bearer. Now, on the surface, this seems very similar, but there's a lot of difference in those two terms. By addressing Mary as God-bearer, the church recognizes the two natures that are present in Christ from the moment of conception. By addressing Mary as Christ, as Christ-bearer, Nestorius was essentially saying that Mary gave birth to Christ, the human being. Big difference. The people addressed by Nestorius were, they were indignant, and they understood the ramifications when they heard this from Nestorius. In fact, the church historian Socrates wrote regarding this incident, quote, Nestorius indeed acted contrary to the usage of the church and caused himself to be hated in other ways also, as is evident from what happened 
during his episcopate, end quote. The church affirmed the title of Mary as mother of God at the Council of Ephesus in 431 to protect the orthodox teaching of who Christ is. Now, this also acknowledges Mary's special place in humanity. How many other people, by saying yes to God, gave birth to the Savior of the world? None. It was Mary, right? Since she said yes, Christ was born and died for the sins of mankind. Now, Martin Luther plainly understood this when he writes, quote, Mary suckled God, rocked God, made broth and soup for God, for God and man are one person, one Christ, one son, one Jesus, not two persons, just as your son is not two sons, even though he has two natures, body and soul, body from you, soul from God alone. That was from Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. A lot of our Protestant friends have lost trace of that, don't know their own history. So from a theological and catechetical point of view, this teaching of the Roman canon is vital to understanding the faith. If one does not see and acknowledge Mary as mother of God, one will easily fall into heresy. If one says that Mary only gave birth to the nature of Christ, the human nature of Christ, the Nestorian and adoptionism, perhaps, is the logical consequence. Mary also reminds us to leave our entire selves at the foot of the cross. So, after honoring and asking for the intercession of Mary, the Roman canon asks for the intercession of the other saints. In fact, the canon specifically mentions the Twelve Apostles, and the following saints by name. It mentions Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius, Cyprian, Lawrence, Chrysogenus, Cosmus, John, Paul, and Damian. All 12 are martyrs, but among the list are five popes, a deacon, and five laymen. Now, it's kind of fascinating that five laymen are names in conjunction with, that are they're mentioned in conjunction with five great popes of the early church. This has super important significance, though. Don't lose sight of this. You see, the church is not only the church of the pontiff, but the church of Christ is for everyone. We all have a role to play, and our witness to the faith can influence generations of future Christians to live for Christ. In the Great Commission, our Lord sent the apostles to every region of the known world to teach and spread the gospel. In Matthew 28, 19-20, our Lord says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Spreading the faith is not something that is for the bishops and priests only, but it's the obligation of every baptized person. So this section of the canon is not merely a reminder to remember those who went before or a reminder to spread the faith, but it's a theological reminder of the doctrine of the intercession of saints. This is another aspect of Catholicism, excuse me, that our non-Catholic brethren object to, and unfortunately, one that formal Catholic, former Catholics never understood. Now, like I said a moment ago, at the top of the show, um, unfortunately, the church is hemorrhaging some young people. 
in recent years, there's been a lot of young people coming in through RCIA, but there are those who, being raised in the church, never understood, and they're leaving. In fact, this win-loss ratio is, uh, is astronomical. For every person that comes into the church, 6.45 are leaving. Kind of sad. The intercession of the saints is one doctrine that is misunderstood by those who leave. But the Roman canon defines exactly why we evoke them. We ask that they pray to God on our behalf for protection. Those opposed say that this is a form of necromancy and should be avoided. But this is a very simple understanding. You see, my friends, necromancy is summoning of the dead in aid of predicting the future. This is not what is happening when we invoke the intercession of the saints. We believe that they are alive, and since they are living, they can intercede for us. The teaching of the church is one that, again, comes from scripture and tradition. One scriptural reference in is John 11.25, where Christ says that those who die in him never die. Did you catch that? Those who die in Christ never die. Okay? One that speaks very clearly of saintly intercession is Revelation 5.8, which says, quote, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The faithful have been catechized in this concept from the beginnings of the church. The early Christians were heavily persecuted, and they were put to death for following Christ. When they were martyred, they were placed in catacombs under the city. Christians would hold mass and ask for the prayers of their dearly departed friends. They looked to their example and asked them to pray for those on earth who were undergoing persecution. On earth, we are asked to pray for one another. By no means is this via light 1 Timothy 2.5, which says that Christ is the only meteor. Meteor? Mediator, I'm sorry. Since those who are with Christ in heaven are still alive. They still mediate for us through Christ. So my friends, I'm going to leave it there today. And uh, next week, we will finish up on the Roman canon. There's, There's so much theology and history in here. So I have some homework for you this week. Pick up a missile or if you read the Magnificat to give us the daily bread, those periodicals that come out, give, that give the mass readings every month. The Eucharistic prayers are in those. Read through Eucharistic prayer one and read it again. Maybe read it again and pray about it. I promise you're going you're gonna to see some great teaching and notice a change as you understand it. All right, God bless you, my friends. Thank you for turning into the Burnt Toast and Coffee Show. And uh, God bless you. Love each other. Pray for each other. God bless.